Today we are continuing our sermon series on the primeval history contained in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. These are some of the most ancient oral traditions of our faith tradition, which began to be developed right after God delivered the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt. Centuries later, on the other side of the rise and fall of kings in the temple, in exile in Babylon, the Israelites began to write those oral traditions down. Both of those contexts, post-Exodus and mid-exile, significantly shape these stories. In both cases, there were people who were well acquainted with suffering and evil, but they had also seen God demonstrate immense power and love. In today's scripture, we see God's people trying to make meaning about those two opposite experiences. Our reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, and verse 21. Listen now for God's word. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent tricked me, and I ate. And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and for his wife and clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. God of love and providence, God of surprises and provision, we ask that you would meet us here in this story one that is so familiar and so widely interpreted and misinterpreted throughout the ages, it's hard to even enter into it. We ask that you would help us to hear a new word from you. 
quiet the distractions within and without, startle us with your truth. Shape us into the people you dreamt of at creation. In your son's name we pray. Amen. In the cool of the evening, Eve and Adam hid in the garden, feeling exposed, vulnerable, and afraid. Now they understood what evil looked like, what it felt like. Their bodies and choices made them feel ashamed and embarrassed, horrified and terrified. Their minds were spinning with questions, big and small. It just didn't make any sense. If God was good, if God loved them, created them, provided for them, why would God keep them from being more like God? But on the other hand, why would God have that tree in the garden? Had God lied to them? Or had the snake lied? What did it all mean? The story of creation comes just after the story of creation that we explored last week. Even though they come right after another, these two stories feel drastically different. In the first, we had this God who was powerful enough to create all that is seen and unseen by God's self, and yet still took the time to pause, to name creation as good, to reinforce this rhythm of purposeful work, rest, and joy. Genesis 1 is full of imagery of powerful forces of earth and cosmic nature. Genesis 2 and 3, by contrast, show us a God who made the first human from mud and breathed the breath of life into it. This creation narrative shows us a God who adapted to surprises. When no other animal created would be good enough to be that first human's equal, this creation story shows us the God who improvised. A God who made another human from the first one, forging a connection between the two unlike any other creature. This story shows us a God who walked in the garden in the evening, who knew how to sew clothes, who seemed much more human than the God we read about in Genesis 1. It feels different, and that's intentional. In many ways, this serves a different purpose. Its contradictions with Genesis 1 aren't meant to be obstacles to our understanding, but instead they are an invitation to conversation, an invitation to open-ended wondering. In this creation story, God had made all kinds of plants and trees in the Garden of Eden, and we are told that there are two special trees, the tree of life, which was a tree that gave eternal life, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God told Adam, the first human, that he could eat the fruit of any of the trees in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If Adam did eat the fruit of that tree, God said that Adam would die. Adam seemed to have passed on that instruction to Eve, who was created later. We see that in her words to the snake. Oddly enough, they could have eaten from the tree of life. There's no boundary around that initially. It's just this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, in this part of the Bible, we're still in the genre of poetry. This is not a science or history report. There's, there's not a list of facts all in bullet points. That being said, having a snake talk and seemingly walk uh, was not normal. It is a detail that's meant to grab our attention. In the ancient world, people believed that gods took on different images, everything from human-like bodies to animals to combinations of the two. 
Fertility gods were often represented by snakes or serpents. In this text, we read that the snake was crafty, which can also be translated as shrewd. This snake was smart and calculating, sneaky and manipulative, even though the snake in the story was described as an animal created by God, certainly acted a lot like the snake gods of other cultures. For those in the ancient world, snakes were revered and fertility gods were especially important in an underpopulated land. Eve was not naive or stupid. A snake that represented intelligence and fertility would have been powerful and persuasive. The snake challenged Eve, asking her if God had said they couldn't eat from any of the trees in the garden. It was such an unlikely concept that it prompts the listener to respond fairly quickly. No, that's not what God said. It's just this one tree, just the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is what Eve did. But the snake's question was just provocative enough to spark another unspoken question in Eve's mind. Why? Why would God set that boundary? See, the snake's words called into question God's goodness and love for Eve and Adam. If God was good and loved them and wanted to take care of them, why wouldn't God let them eat from any tree in the garden? Why all of them except for that one? Maybe the snake was right. Maybe God was trying to keep the humans from becoming like God, as powerful as God, as in control as God, as in charge as God was. If God could handle that tree, and if even Adam could eat from every other tree, maybe that knowledge wouldn't actually kill them. Maybe it would just make them wise and powerful certainly admirable to desire wisdom. And even Adam already knew what goodness looked like. They were in God's garden. So maybe that new knowledge would help them recognize what was not good and choose goodness. If it were an abstract kind of objective kind of knowledge, maybe obtaining that kind of knowledge didn't merit the kinds of consequences they ended up receiving. But as with most words in ancient Hebrew, the word knowledge carry within it connotations of wisdom, maturity, cognitive knowing, as well as knowledge that only comes from experience. Many meanings in one word. To be able to discern between two things, to be able to recognize evil and its difference from goodness, means one had to understand what evil looked, sounded, and felt like. Not in the abstract or conceptual sense, in the personal, in the experiential sense of knowing. There are some kinds of knowledge that can't be attained without experiencing the event firsthand. And that knowledge that Eve and Adam experienced, that they now knew, it was the fullness of the horror that this world can hold. And the Hebrew people on the other side of the Red Sea coming out of Egypt knew that horror all too well. The Israelites captured by enemies and held in exile in Babylon knew that horror all too well. Knowing evil, even if it's just to distinguish it from good, involved an experiential element. 
when Adam and Eve hid from God in the garden that evening, it was not the same as a child hiding from their parent after the child took a toy they shouldn't have. It was not the same as giving a simple correction and moving on with the day. Eve and Adam hid, not because they were nervous about receiving a scolding, but because they were terrified. They had seen, they had come to know, in some way they had experienced the reality of evil and suffering. The awareness of what suffering felt like, along with the doubts and fears raised by that snake's cunning questions, it jeopardized their trust and understanding in God and of themselves. If suffering was that real and that awful and God was that powerful and that good, why would God allow it to exist? If evil and suffering were real, how could God also be good? If evil and suffering were real and God was good, how could humans also be good? If God didn't love humans, then maybe their bodies, their selves, their choices were things to be ashamed of. Crouching in the garden, terrified and ashamed, these questions loomed with seemingly no answers in sight. The questions facing Eve and Adam sound pretty familiar to my ears. We don't have to look far to see evidence of brokenness, evil, and suffering in our world. Just here in our congregation, we have lost three beloved members in the past few weeks, two of them to illnesses that caused them significant pain and suffering. Just outside our doors, effects of gun violence, homelessness, and the opioid epidemic are painfully evident. Across the country, residents of Maui fell victim to powerful brush fires. This week, members of our our church are serving those in Kentucky who are still rebuilding their lives a year after huge floods devastated their community. Across the globe, wars and illness afflict countless people. You know I could go on and on. The reality is staggering. It is too much to bear. Judith Lewis Herman, a professor of psychiatry and author of two influential books on trauma and recovery, describes this dynamic of asking questions and trying to make meaning of suffering in this way. She says, survivors of atrocity of every age and every culture come to a point in their testimony where all questions are reduced to one, spoken more in bewilderment than in outrage. Why? The answer is beyond human understanding. And yet, we can't seem to stop asking why. What's more, in our culture today, logic, deductive reasoning, scientific method, they're all highly prized. Ideas that can be proven are seen as certain and therefore better. I've even seen this in grant writing. Funders consistently prioritize, quote, hard data impact proven by numbers trending in one direction or another while soft data anecdotal evidence is far less valued our society today prioritizes proven facts as truth and reduces the power of stories to mere entertainment we lean hard on deductive reasoning 
And that, that in other words, means if X, then Y must be absolutely true. So deductive reasoning takes one thing and says it is absolutely related to this other thing without a shadow of a doubt. Inductive reasoning says if X, then Y is most likely absolutely true, but there is a smidge, there is some room, there is some gray area there, some ambiguity, some room for wondering and discovery. Now, neither of these methods of knowing are better than the other, but they serve different purposes. For example, deductive reasoning helps us ensure outcomes in medicine before making a treatment widely available. On the other hand, if we didn't have inductive reasoning, we wouldn't have the room for discoveries, for finding those advances in medicine in the first place. We wouldn't have the room for asking what if, for change and progress. Our mental struggle and anguish in the face of suffering only deepens when we try to apply deductive reasoning to answer the question, why? Just think of the lengths to which people have gone to prove or disprove God's existence or God's goodness. The mental gymnastics readers of this text have performed to show how it can and ought to be understood as referencing literal things. We want to say, okay, if evil and suffering are real, then God must not be good or powerful or loving. And so when we look at instances when we have experienced goodness or love or powerful deliverance, we dismiss them as flukes, as soft data, as something that can't be proven it was God. Sure, maybe it was likely that it was God, but we can't be sure. We can't be certain. And if we can't be certain, then there's a chance it's not true at all. If we can't be certain, then we can't trust it. If we can't be certain, then maybe God isn't good. Maybe God isn't powerful. Maybe God doesn't love us. But this story does not invite us to deductive reasoning. It invites us to inductive reasoning, to ask questions, to wonder, to discover. Now, in the garden, those same doubts and fears, maybe God isn't good, maybe God isn't powerful, maybe God doesn't love us, those were brought to the surface when the snake spoke with Eve. In response, she sought out more knowledge, more power, more certainty, and dismissed the truth of God's goodness that she had already experienced the truth that she already knew from living and working in the garden before the snake sought her out. Ironically, obtaining more knowledge did not lead Eve to the answer to the question of why. It led to experiential knowledge of suffering. It only deepened her uncertainty. It caused her to distrust Adam and distrust God. It led her further away from the truth that she had already known and deeper into fear and confusion. So she and Adam hid, afraid and ashamed. God still sought them out, still pursued a relationship with them. But Eve blamed the snake. Adam blamed both Eve and God. In response, God described the effects of that new and awful knowledge. 
the snake would no longer be revered, but instead be despised. Adam and Eve would both experience hardship and suffering in different ways. God sent them out from the garden to prevent them from eating from the tree of life and becoming immortal while having this experiential knowledge of evil and goodness. And then there is this curious little detail. God sewed them clothes. In the face of their vulnerability, Eve and Adam had grasped at fig leaves to try and cover themselves. Now God had made Eve and Adam and the garden in such a way that they didn't need that. Their bodies were good and whole as is. But in their fear, they began to feel shame about their bodies and themselves. A fig leaf outfit wouldn't last them very long. Wouldn't do much of anything to protect them from the hardships ahead of them. It wouldn't grant them comfort. They didn't need to feel ashamed about their bodies. That didn't change. But God knew that they felt that way and met them in that fear and shame. God met them in the face of the hard things to come and did this tender act of sewing them clothes. In the years to come, when Eve would tell the story, when her grandchildren and great-grandchildren would tell the story, the story would include the snake and the questions, the suffering and the shame, the goodness that was given and lost. And it would include this act of care, God sewing them close, God giving them a reminder of God's care and goodness, even as they faced the consequences and reality of sin. And in the years to come, when God's people would wander in the wilderness after being delivered out of Egypt, when they would mourn the loss of their homes and temple while in exile in Babylon, it would be this story and the story of creation in Genesis 1 that would give them the strength and comfort to endure. God stitched these stories together. You cannot have one without the other. In Genesis 1, we have God saying, it is very good, setting a boundary around um, our time and reminding us that our worth does not come from our productivity. And in this story, we have God setting boundaries around evil, giving them practices for how to live. These stories are stitched together on purpose to help us make meaning of the world around us, to help us heal. You cannot have one without the other. God is still doing this work of meeting us in our pain and stitching together stories to heal us, to help us endure. When we gathered last week to honor the memory of one of our members, the majority of our time together was spent sharing stories, not analyzing why she suffered or how to solve illness. That would have done nothing for us. That would have deepened our pain. Instead, we told stories, stories of her goodness, stories of God's goodness showing up in her life, not hard data from which we could extrapolate proof of something or another. It was soft data, stories, stories that lead us through the discovery process of inductive reasoning, stories that lead us to wonder, maybe God has been with us all along. The art on the cover of your bulletin today was made by an artist named Luke Haynes. On his website, he talks about growing up in poverty in a particularly tumultuous 
family and community. He experienced suffering there. And in the midst of that here and there, as a young person, he stitched and mended his clothes and other things around him. Eventually he found his way in, uh, at school and studied to be an architect. He delighted in the act of creating structures and forms that offered containment for chaos, safety for disorder. But he struggled to find his purpose on this earth. And then one day he picked up some fabric and thread and he began to stitch like he had when he was younger. And all of a sudden, a love for quilting and mending was reborn. He started using principles from architecture to create quilts that reflected structure, but also comfort. He worked to create art with his quilts, moving away from traditional geometric patterns to more organic shapes. His work embodies both the structure that he and the world need, as well as the comfort and delight that comes with that. And even more than that, part of what I love about quilts as an image or analogy for the kind of storytelling that God gives to us is that each little piece of fabric, if you look very closely, is its own little story of sorts. It has its own shapes and colors, its own lines and patterns. But joined together with countless others, it is still its own story, but now it contributes to a larger whole that is more beautiful than we can imagine, more beautiful than the individual story itself. We still have a lot of unknowns before us. I don't think there is one definitive answer to the question, why? But I do know that stories grant us a kind of wisdom, a kind of healing, a kind of truth that is more holistic and embodied than a simple list of facts. And it is my prayer for us that we would lean on these stories, that these stories would support us in the face of hardship, that we would learn to trust just as strongly in the stories that tell us the truth that God is good and powerful and loving as we do in other kinds of knowing. May this be so. Amen.